Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this third episode of Series 5, we're taking a look at conduct risk. And that has evolving regulatory expectations. So what is conduct risk? Well, examples include everything from conflicts of interest, poor product design, insider dealing, corporate governance, reputational risk weaves into this too, and indeed mis-selling due to inappropriate incentive schemes. Basically, any action or inaction which either leads to customer detriment or negatively impacts market stability. Now, conduct risk and the associated focus on culture is very much a feature of a principles-based approach to financial services regulation and is seeking to ensure that firms put, and indeed are seen to put, the customer first. Now, that means that many regulators around the world are trying to stamp out a tick box overly legalistic approach to compliance, together with the issues that come from complying with only the letter rather than the spirit of the rulebook. Now, to consider the continuing compliance challenges associated with the future of culture and conduct risk, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Helen Chan and Mike Cowan. Hi there, Susanna. Hi, Susanna. Thank you guys for joining me. Um, So, Mike, let's sort of start with uh, where are we now? Conduct risk, where are we now? Yeah, so where are we now? Well, I think it's worth just having a brief history lesson. I'm not going to take too long over this uh, before we look at the future um, trends within conduct risk. So the concept of conduct risk has been around for some time. um, And I suppose really starting in 2008, uh, following the global financial crisis, the Twin Peaks approach to regulation separated prudential regulation, which is the governance the capital, the statistics, the financial elements of, of, of a financial services firm, and the conduct regulation. Um, and many countries adopted a, at least a version of this approach. Um, in the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulatory Authority, which was attached to the Bank of England, uh, came into being to evidence this separation. Uh, the Financial Conduct Authority, uh, built on the work of its predecessor, the Financial Services Authority, and as you say, it's a principles-based approach. So, uh, and the principle that that conduct really focuses on is treating customers fairly, as was in the financial services authorities era. And, and as you say, Susanna, at the heart of treating customers fairly was the desire to have fair customer outcomes through a firm's culture, products, sales, um, and after-sales policies. Um, unfortunately, um, as much as we are still, we still deal with principle-based regulation, uh, the principles-based approach to, to, to treating customers fairly in the 2000s meant that firms interpreted it in different ways. But, but ultimately, firms skewed the implementation of TCF into ways that suited them. And this, all was, this wasn't always compatible with what the regulator intended. And I suppose, as a result, this partly resulted in the global financial crisis. So Twin Peaks, therefore, Twin Peaks was thought to be the measure to cure this confusion, uh, leaving a single regulatory body, in in most cases around the world anyway, uh, to devote its time to improving the, uh, the understanding and expectations of good conduct in the financial services sector. And there has been conduct risk successes 
or maybe it's failures, depending on how you look at it. I mean, we've seen things like the sub the subprime mortgage crisis, Lehman Brothers collapse, in the UK the payment protection insurance scandal, uh, the manipulation of LIBOR, uh, the London whale scandal, and, and there's, there's been many more instances where the, the regulators and the industry have tried to get to get a grip um, with conduct risk risk issues. And what is driving? where we are now. I mean, and we're going to go and talk about Asia um, very shortly um, with Helen. But so what is driving the regulators to continue to pursue conduct risk as a strategic regulatory approach? Well, I think as well as the uh, as the bad behaviours that we've seen through firms, they are still seeing significant customer harm through, uh, through, through various practices. Um, We've mentioned a few examples there, but but equally, um, when you get um, beneath the, the headline um, enforcement actions that, that regulators have taken, um, we're still the regulators are still seeing um, um, bad practices when it comes to firms' culture, uh, their products, uh, their sales techniques, and actually how 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 customers are being handled. Um, um, post sale um, um, as part of a customer service um, uh, perspective and um, the message all throughout con- the conduct risk era has very much been that conduct risk needs to be embedded with the firm it, it permeates throughout all levels of the firm um, em- employees of firms have got to be trained on it um, uh, processes have got to have it um, embedded within them Policies have got to support good conduct, and and the strategic direction of the firm um, must also support that ethical uh, strate- uh, conduct, uh, good conduct, good outcomes based approach. But the re- but as much as progress may well have been made over the last 10, 15 years, the regulators are still seeing bad bad, bad practice, and therefore, I mean, conduct uh, um, now is just as big a issue as it was. 10 years ago. That's a slightly depressing thought, actually. So we'll move swiftly on to Asia. Um, Helen, where's Asia got to with all of this, its approach to conduct risk and associated need for good customer outcomes? So Susanna, as you and Mike have said, the interpretation of conduct risk is changing. And in some ways, it's also expanding as well. Right now, there's quite a bit of uncertainty as to what regulators could consider grounds for enforcement when it comes to bad conduct. And we've seen in reaction to this, there are firms that self-police the behavior of their staff based on their own interpretation of what good and bad conduct look like, as well as their overall appetite for reputational risk. Regulators in Asia have comparatively not been as active in pursuing enforcement action against conduct risk. There have been some higher profile cases involving sexual misconduct, and we're seeing more cases being taken on by regulators like the Securities and Futures Commission in Hong Kong that are related to misconduct that undermines integrity requirements, especially in interactions or disclosures to clients. But a, a big but. Enforcement trends in the United States and the United Kingdom are very relevant to the Asia-Pacific region, as a lot of firms are either multinationals or they're still subject to supervision by um, American and UK regulators. 
So any kind of misconduct that occurs in their overseas offices still poses that enforcement risk at home. For example, uh, the British bank Barclays previously fired an employee in Singapore after a uh, video clip of him swearing and yelling at construction workers was circulated um, around the bank. This is quite a good example of an instance where firms are self-policing and taking action against what they view as misconduct or undesirable conduct, even in the absence of any enforcement action. Um, we also see that you know, overall personal liability risk is rising to an all-time high right now for the financial sector. Customers and also investors are looking to hold senior executives personally accountable for a vastly expanding range of corporate mishaps, um, things that involve diversity inclusion, compliance deficiencies, disclosure, and marketing, just to name a few. All of these things now seem to fall under the umbrella of conduct risk. And on top of that, legally speaking, there's also more avenues for customers to initiate lawsuits against companies for bad conduct. What we're seeing is that customers who have suffered losses are a leading source of risk for corporate leaders. So in that sense, there really is a global recognition, even in Asia, that good customer outcomes can mitigate personal liability and conduct risk. No, I think that that's a very good way to put it. Um, if, and I realise it's an if and it's a complicated old world out there, if you can put good customer outcomes at the centre of your approach as a financial services business, you're not going to go very far wrong. But that is a challenge and that is a continuing challenge. So, Mike, how should firms go about really adopting conduct risk and I know it's never going to be a one size fits all. So what does good begin to look like if a firm truly is going to succeed with its approach to conduct risk? No, as you say, um, not a one size fits all approach um, at all, really. Um, but there are, there are distinct uh, guidance and, um, and components out there that firms can apply to their firms. So as you say, Susanna, the FCA defined uh, conduct risk as the risk that the conduct, acts or emissions of the firm or individuals within the firm will A, deliver poor or unfair outcomes for the customer, or B, adversely affect market integrity, just repeating what you said in your introduction. Now, to achieve this, um, the FCA has uh, three um, objectives. They used to be statutory objectives. I think they're now called operational objectives. But that is to protect consumers, to secure an appropriate degree of protection for consumers, to protect financial markets, to protect and enhance the integrity of the UK financial system, and to promote competition, to promote effective competition in the interests of consumers. Now, in order for firms to be able to demonstrate to the FCA that they are um, supporting those objectives, then the FCA um, listed five um, questions for which firms to consider um, and to, to be able to answer them appropriately. So what are the five, five questions? Well, number one is what proactive steps does the firm take to identify conduct risks in its business? Number two, how does the, the firm encourage people in front, middle, back office control and support functions to feel responsible for managing conduct. Three, what supports the, the firm 
What support does the firm put in place to help its people improve the conduct of their business or function? Number four, how does the firm's board and executive committee get oversight of conduct in the organisation and how do people bring it to their discussions? And the final one, number five, has the firm looked at where there are any business activities it is engaged in that undermine its work to improve conduct? So given those five questions, how can the, what can the firm do from a structurally, from a governance, from a framework perspective to encompass all of these and make sure that all angles of those questions are, are answered? Well, again, there's a, there's a few steps. So firstly, they can define what conduct risk is, what it means to the firm, how to ensure that the staff understand uh, this, is, uh, this is their responsibility um, at their inductions and um, on an ongoing basis thereafter. So basically, define what conduct risk is and make sure that everybody knows what that definition is. The second thing is a conduct a conduct risk assessment. Um, now, again, this is around um, having processes in place to be able to identify uh, conduct risk through various external and internal sources uh, when, when it comes to potentially, uh, potentially uh, a cohort of customers that might give you a potential conduct risk from an external perspective or a particular um, um, economic strategy might give you conduct, conduct risk from an external perspective. From an internal perspective, it might be the product that you're selling. It might be the, uh, it might be the the IT system that doesn't allow you to do something. It might be the sales technique that that the sales guys are are uh, involved in. Um, all of those could be sources uh, to identify what the conduct risk is uh, for for the firm. The third thing is that they should align the business model and the strategy to conduct risk. So having a clear relationship between the conduct risk and your business model and strategy so that so that these two things are not disparate, so that the business is not going down a path that is going to lead you to into, uh, by default, uh, conduct uh, risk issues in the future. They should consider uh, the, the conduct risk appetite of, uh, of the firm, i.e. how much conduct risk, how much re uh, reputational damage, if you like, um, that the firm could, could take on board as a result of conduct risk. It's all too easy for firms to say, well, in this area, you know, treating customers fairly and reputation, we, we don't want to, do, to take any risk. But is that really realistic? That might be what, what, what the heart says, but in reality, there may be things that you might want to take a little bit of risk at, or, you, you, or there might be, might be things within the business that lead you to take more conduct risk. It needs to be thought through objectively. There should need to be governance and con controls and behaviours in place that support the conduct risk strategy, and there should be appropriate reporting up through the structures, up, up through, through the line management, into governance committees, and ultimately up, up, up to the board. And I suppose the final point I'm going to make here is the, is, the, is the old chestnut about conduct risk needs to be embedded within the firm, not only within the risk management framework of the firm, but within the behaviours, the processes, the training, um, the strategy. It needs to be part of the DNA of the firm going forward. And that, I know we're slightly repeating ourselves again here, that really is easier said than done because firms are living, breathing, amorphous things. 
they are always changing and getting conduct risk into the DNA and keeping it there has to have board level focus all the time. And it's not something you can pick up and put down. It has to be a living, breathing board item that is discussed, considered and metrics, lots and lots of metrics, which for qualitative measures, such as a lot of things for conduct, risk and culture, are very tricky to do because there is so much context around those metrics. Um, Helen, in Asia, what sort of approach are you beginning to see firms employ? I mean, we've got a relatively granularly defined regime in the UK. Is that the sort of thing Asian firms are also seeking to adopt? So it does differ between jurisdictions. Um, The Hong Kong Monetary Authority introduced a self-assessment exercise some time ago for mostly regulated firms. And uh, that became one of the things that firms now have to do regularly, which means, again, they also have to gather all the data and find a way to work through the metrics and, and things like that. And for a lot of firms, that's, again, easier said than done, especially um, when it comes to what sort of data should they be collecting for the exercise. Um, there's still uncertainty around that. Meanwhile, in Singapore, regulators seem to be adopting what they call a proactive sort of predict and prevent approach. So in practice, this could also result in increased compliance burden for firms, again, in terms of gathering data and developing training that meets the regular regulatory expectations. Thank you. Yes. I mean, the Several things coming out of all of this. I mean, the focus and the consistency of the approach is absolutely critical. However, we are sort of coming back to the fact that, you know, previous regulatory approaches on all of this have not actually delivered consistently good customer outcomes from firms. So so here in the UK, we have got a new consumer duty, which is so all-encompassing from the rulebook perspective, we actually have a new principle associated with it. So, Mike, new consumer duty and its ramifications, I mean, is this a sort of slightly nuclear option from the UK regulators because previous approaches haven't quite met the need and actually worked consistently well? Uh, Yeah, possibly. Um, I like to look at it as more of an incremental stepped approach. So, for me, the, the new FCA's uh, consumer duty um, builds on the work of treating customers fairly, both in the in the uh, in the previous regulator, the FSA, and the work that the FCA have done over the last uh, ten years, because I think it hits on some of the same um, the same sort of areas. So, um, so what the FCA are trying to do is they're trying to um, get a clearer and higher expectation for the standard of care that firms give to customers, which sort of alludes to your point, Susanna, about they're obviously not happier, they're not happy rather, uh, with the way that previous principles or previous um, initiatives have dealt with with this issue. But when it comes to the nuts and bolts, the the consumer duty pretty much revolves around three areas. So the FCA are saying that the firms have to ensure that 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 firms sorry that, that firms 
need to ensure that they provide products and services that meet the needs of their customers and offer fair value. There's a little bit of difference there from the old products uh, message from TCF. Consumers are equipped with information to make effective, timely and informed decisions about products and services. Um, again, this is this is a sort of hangover, but in, in many ways, this places a, a greater focus on customer information, which frankly, firms have really had a mixed um, 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 approach to. Some have sort of got it and are sort of starting to use um, um, uh, more clearer and more focused uh, media to deliver customer information, but some firms are still reliant on, on small text, garbled info garbled jargon based uh, documents to 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 deliver um, customer information and then the third thing is that the customer receives good customer service which is a sort of catch-all really so yeah in in many ways um um, um in, in many ways this is a, a frustration from the regulator that's, that's saying look you haven't got it right so far but so we're going to change things but it's also a ratcheting up of uh, of uh, of focus on areas that have been around for some time, and and coming back to to the Asian sorry thank you Mike the, coming back to the sort of Asian stance I mean the UK's new consumer duty really is pretty all encompassing I mean and Helen you've touched on where some of the Asian regulators are going can you see a consumer duty equivalent becoming the direction of travel in Asia or might that be a step too far there. I think for now, the focus um, is more on the old best interest standard and integrity requirements around that. As I've mentioned, the SFC, they, they've been pretty focused on that area and um, sort of their interpretation of conduct risk as it relates to good customer outcomes focuses mostly on disclosures, communications to clients, um, are firms acting in the best interest of clients, that that sort of direction is at least where Hong Kong is headed right now. So it remains to be seen if there will be a lot of jurisdictions um, in the Asia Pacific region that will follow the UK approach. Uh, we, we can't really say for sure at this moment. Sure, I mean, I think the um, one of the questions um, that will encompass um, conduct risk and associated reputation risk, indeed culture, is where the regulatory perimeter ends up being set on some of this and some of the um, potential for influencers and the regulatory perimeters and cryptos, which we can't really have a podcast without mentioning cryptos at the moment. Um, so, Mike, influencers, regulatory perimeters, do we think conduct risk is going to get an even bigger umbrella helicopter view on all of this or is it all going to be encompassed by what we've already got in terms of the rule book um no i think you're absolutely right i think the umbrella is definitely unfolding to be honest um um i i think i mean we've discussed this before the three of us around um how conduct risk has its tentacles in so many different business and operational processes strategy tactics etc um and you, you know, I suppose that at the heart of this is that, 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 that firms will see that the desire to provide the customer with a good and fair customer outcome 
um, you know, is at the heart of their strategies and is to be taken uh, very seriously. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that on the face value firms absolutely do believe that. But I suppose when it comes to the future of conduct risk and what, what regulators are going to look at going forward, I suppose my reference point here is the recently released uh, FCA strategy uh, uh, for 2022 to 2025. And there's a lot in that, in fairness. So I'm just going to pick, uh, pick up one or two things. Um, and regulatory perimeter, as you say, uh, 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 Susanna, is in there. I mean, I suppose that the FCA's thought process when it comes to regulatory perimeter and conduct risk is the fact that um, if they're policing the perimeter better, whether that be through authorising firms or looking at new uh, parts of regulation, like you say, like cryptos, then there is less there is less risk of customer detriment coming from unscrupulous firms, for example, that get authorised, um, and and then um, mislead customers, um, if they're not authorised in, in in the first place, for example, and similarly if they if they get to subjects like cryptos sooner, uh, and um, and manage to regulate those more effectively, more quickly. Um, then there is less risk of customer detriment. And I suppose to this end, uh, more recently, the FCA has taken steps to, um, to relieve firms of permissions, of authorizations uh, that they weren't using. So there are a significant cohort of firms sat on the FCA register that have applied for FCA permissions, being granted them, whether that be temporary or full, but have never used those permissions, have, have probably just um, applied for them on the off chance. Well, the FCA are now starting to weed those firms out and relieve them of those permissions. So so uh, the, the fundamental point on regulatory perimeter here is that, yes, regulatory per perimeter is something that the FCA see as being key to the future of conduct risk. In, in other areas, I've got a couple of structural th things. So the FCA mentioned things like redress frameworks. So when, when things go wrong, such as firm failures or products not performing or being missold, um, there's a need for obviously a, a robust redress framework. And in the UK and in, in, in other jurisdictions as well, this will mean improving things like the compensation scheme um, 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 within those countries and the ability of customers to complain and be dealt with in a fair way. So the FCAC improving that th those areas is being key to conduct risk. The FCA, from a sales perspective, see uh, improving the appointed representatives regime as, as key. So appointed reps are firms that are, or, or advisors uh, that carry out regula regulated activity under the responsibility of the authorised firm. So they're not directly authorised themselves. But within that gap, there is scope for, for significant customer harm. Uh, the FCA have recognised this and they are putting something in place to uh, more appropriately regulate the appointed representatives regime. And we can't leave the structural sort of element without mentioning financial crime and market abuse. I mean, for financial crime, there's an obvious uh, uh, consequence for customers from fraud and money laundering. Um, and the threat is, is likely to increase with increased digitalization and, um, and the, 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 the effects of the pandemic. Um, um, 
and there are signs that the regulators are ramping up their focus on financial crime. Um, I mean, there's been significant fines for uh, for money laundering offences uh, for NatWest and HSBC towards the end of last year. And the prediction is that there will be more focus on financial crime through this year. And market abuse, similarly, I suppose, um, market abuse undermines the integrity of the, of the financial system and it erodes confidence um, um, for, for those participating in it. And the regulators, uh, to, to, try and, uh, to try and prevent that, uh, the regulators and the FCA want to improve the way they detect market abuse going forward. And again, firms should have a one eye on this, if you see what I mean. I mean, other things, and like I say, I won't, I won't mention them all. We've mentioned the consumer duty, the improvements the FCA wish to make to the way that customers are treated. Um, uh, we, we can't, I, I can't leave this section by, by mentioning uh, vulnerable customers. Uh, again, significant work has been undertaken by regulators in recent years, and this shows no sign of slowing down. In fact, firms need, firms need to have identified their vulnerable customers, put policies and processes in place to cater for them, and provide staff with the skills and knowledge to be able to treat those, those uh, vulnerabilities in a sympathetic way uh, to please the regulator in, in, in this space. Um, um, and I suppose from a vulnerable customer's perspective, firms should be looking at vulnerable customers from a strategic point of view as well. I mean, for example, um, you know, the closure of a bank branch, for example, uh, may be cost efficient for the bank, but, but what harm does that do to the customers who rely on that branch, especially those um, with vulnerabilities? Um, ESG and operational resilience are also areas that uh, that have a conduct impact. ESG is very uh, topical at the moment uh, with regards to gathering data and pr providing investors and others with with clear and and uh, and understandable information. Again, there is a conduct risk link there. And operational resilience, I mean, again, this is sort of topical in that um, from, from two angles, really. So recovering from an operational disruption is obviously very important for financial services firms. So things like online banking and that going down or payments not being made ultimately do customer harm. And in the UK, the regulators are pushing their operational resilience agenda you know, through the release of policy statements, and that you know the deadline for that, as you know, is just recently um, um, been and gone. So operational resilience topical for two reasons: the 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 digital IT failures, but also the focus that the regulators are putting in that area. And finally, um, and apologies for going on, but it's because as you say, that the umbrella is quite wide in this area. Um, but in the UK, the FCA has an objective to, to promote competition and positive change. And this brings things to the table like whole, like conduct in wholesale markets, which I haven't touched on. And then there's the 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 the, the spectre of increased digitalization and the conduct elements within within that. I mean, both of these areas firms need to need to assess um, uh, going forward. So you're right that there there is a there is a, a wide range of things that that, that fall on the uh, the conduct risk table. Yeah, huge range of things on the conduct risk table. And I mean, just to sort of add one very small thing into that, I mean, every single enforcement action you will see and read about 
has an element of a conduct risk failure in there. So it, there is a direct connection between a conduct risk failure and regulatory sanction. Um, we, we've looked at really quite granular detail for, for the UK. So if I take it back out, because um, we're coming towards the end of our time, to a macro level and Asia, I mean, in terms of macro things that could be done to improve the world of conduct risk, the world of better customer outcomes. Helen, what are the macro things looking like that could and should make the outcomes from financial services for customers that bit better? So I think in terms of firms looking at the issue of conduct risk and how it affects good customer outcomes, um, as, as Mike sort of said, expecting for expecting businesses to operate in an environment of zero risk is not practical. It's it's not possible. But with the expanding umbrella of conduct risk, firms really should think about what out of that umbrella is relevant to good customer outcomes and what should be included in their reputational risk appetite um, instead of just trying to include everything in there because that will subsequently affect how the framework is developed and how it's implemented and also in terms of encouraging people to comply with it and uh, establishing credibility with the policies that will all be affected if it's just interpreted too widely. Yeah, no, I think that's very sensible. It, it's it's almost pick your battles, I suppose, in, in that, that sense. Um, moving on to takeaways for compliance officers. Um, from my perspective, and I've touched on metrics already, I'm going to really emphasize the point with regard to qualitative metrics, the need for them and the power of them and the need for the context around them. And I'm just going to give one very small example around context. In terms of bold numbers, let's let's take an example. Complaints are a key metric for how you can look at your and assess your approach to conduct risk and the success of your approach to conduct risk. So let's say you're a firm and you have 20 complaints a week. Now, either you can be incredibly happy or absolutely horrified by that. On the very happy side, the context around that 20 would be you've identified all complaints. You've had the sufficient line of sight to where the issues are that you can remediate policies, procedures, approach, sales advice, whatever it is. You've changed all of those complainants into advocates for your business and you've kept all of those customers. That 20 for complaints, I would suggest, is a very positive number for the firm. The flip side being that if there is a different context around that number, so you've got 20 complaints and you as head of compliance or whatever are convinced half of them have missed, there's no line of sight to what's been going on that where the sales process has broken down. So after sales service has been proved to be completely awful and you can't see why, and you've lost those customers. That is a complete spectrum of context around the simple number of 20 complaints. Your challenge with regard to qualitative conduct risk metrics is to capture that context and give that context to the risk committee, the board, whoever these numbers are going to. So I would suggest investing in not only the analytics, but your ability to capture the context around the analytics and the metrics is going to take you a very long way because it will enhance your line of sight to what is truly going on in a conduct risk perspective. 
Mike, takeaway from your perspective? I think from, from a compliance officer's perspective, my takeaway is don't underestimate the, 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 the scale of this, the, the, the difficulties in, in, entrenched within this. And I think I touched on it earlier, but it, the difficulties around interpretation of this, because a compliance officer, knowing their business as they do, but reading the rules or the principles and the guidance around uh, conduct risk and the consumer duty and all of that, will have one um, opinion of how the firm should go about various things. But when confronted with a sales director or an operations director or a finance director, the interpretation of that exact same principle um, may well be significantly different. And the, and the, uh, the, um, uh, the key, I suppose, is... Well, what well, what's good for your business for the start for starters, but you have to bear bearing in mind what the regulators would 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 have uh, the opinion the regulators would have um, on whatever action you de- decide to take, and that is the key. I've been I've seen so many different um, um, initiatives in firms that have been all good and well intended but ultimately have not met regulators' in, in intentions because they haven't addressed the fundamental customer outcome of whatever they're trying to do. So I suppose my, um, um, my uh, takeaway is don't underestimate things. Conduct risk um, it needs to be embedded, but frankly, conduct risk has been around now a long time in various guises, um, and there should be an element of, of, of at least in firms uh, of, of embeddingment, if that's a word, um, um, but nevertheless, when it comes to putting um, effective conduct risk strategies on the table, don't underestimate the difficulties that interpretation poses. Thank you. And Helen, from your perspective? So, Susanna, I absolutely agree with your point about um, gathering data for conduct risk metrics. In Asia, there's growing emphasis on complaints handling as it relates to consumer protection, good customer outcomes. But majority of that focus has been on recording, documenting, and reporting. There's been less emphasis on how we could actually use that data to incorporate it into compliance policies and and incorporate it into risk frameworks. So I think that's a really good point. And with that, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Helen. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. As ever, do hope you found it both interesting and useful. Um, In the episode notes, I'll put um, links to the pieces referenced in this podcast and the usual link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. As ever, very much appreciated if you could take the time to review the podcast and do let us know for any suggestions for future topics. Thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.